0: First was that I misread the boom itself, and the second was that I misread the effectiveness of the change in in production models that had that boom basically based on outsourcing and contractual arrangements rather than on direct, consolidated, centralized manufacturing.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotz of A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Tanun Pasha. Tanun, are you ready to rock?
0: I am, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. Well, let's give the audience a little background. Tanun grew up in the United Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates. He has a Bachelor's of Business Administration and an MBA from the University of Karachi, Pakistan. He is a chartered financial analyst like myself and has been a member of the CFA Institute since 1995, a little bit longer than myself. <laughs> Tanun is based in Spencer Stewart's Singapore office and is a member of the firm's financial services practice. Prior to Spencer Stewart, Tanun was the co-founder and chief executive officer of Synopsis Solutions, he also served as Aviva Investors as CEO of both the Asia-Pacific Regional Hub in Singapore and the equity and fixed income businesses in the region. And for a number of years, Tanun worked as head of regional equity investments for ManU Life Asset Management Asia. With nearly three decades of experience in the investment management industry, Tanun specializes in financial services searches, For all of you people out there looking for a job, this is the man, working with a range of clients in the asset management, insurance, and sovereign wealth sectors in Southeast Asia. Tanun, take a minute, fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Um, Sure, Andrew, and uh, so I guess you've covered most of it. The, 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 The context, I'd probably like to add to that, and with particular regard to my investing career, So I started my career in 1990, so just coming out of one of the earlier credit crunches. And I started it investing in oversold markets in Asia and in the Pacific. So it was pretty intuitive and nearly inevitable that I was going to be a contrarian investor. And, you know, I like to think I got quite good at it. Ben Graham was my hero. I could recite bits of his book pretty much verbatim. I got a reputation. But being rigorous and detailed in terms of research and that was more my that was my style what you would think of as traditional fundamental investing and i made most of the money that i made out of going against the crowd on a pretty regular basis i mean if you want to get more of a sense of who i was as an investor that was really it
1: fantastic and in fact that the time that we originally met was when i was also on the sell side in that case doing, trying to do deep research, looking at companies in particular at that time, looking at companies in Thailand. So we, we definitely have that in common as a foundation. Although I think in both of our cases, we've, we've moved further and further, either away or deeper into our thinking about investing. So I'm curious to learn more about that as we hear your story. And now it is time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. And so my worst investment ever was actually a structural underway in my portfolios in the mid-90s. So the context is that we managed money for inequities in, in the Asia-Pacific region and across the, the whole of the region in our portfolios there, which were the the portfolios that I was running, we implemented a structural underweight in technology and mobile telephony in Asia. And that was because I completely misread the trend there through that period of the 90s. And if I think about the the worst investment, and I split it into two things, first was that I misread the boom itself. And the second was that I misread the effectiveness of the change in, in production models that had that boom basically based on outsourcing and contractual arrangements rather than on direct, consolidated, centralized manufacturing. So those were the two. And you know, just to give you a bit of context, yeah, this was a different time. In 1995, 96, there were just 36 million users worldwide on the internet. You know, at the moment, there are over three and a half billion, 51% of all the people on the planet use the internet in one form or the other nearly two-thirds of them on mobile phones in one form in one way or another at the time though it was very very hard to tell that this was going to happen what we were seeing was very strong growth extremely strong growth but looking like it was a log chart of growth so it was a bit slower each year in terms of the 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 level of growth that we were seeing cost of manufacturing across the industry whether you were looking at microchips telephones or even just the cost of acquiring Frequency spectrums for mobile phone users just didn't seem to make sense from a cash flow model perspective, right? So there was no reasonable cost of capital assumption that that I could apply that made the, the returns on investment comparable to many of the traditional industries that were operating in Asia and growing a little bit slower at the time. I'd love
1: to go into that for just a second because of all that I do in teaching valuation. What's interesting about valuation is, of course, as I explain to students, nobody really knows what the value is until it arrives. So we're left making assumptions in models. And in this case, as you said, it was hard for you to model the levels of return that you would have thought you would need to offset the cost of capital. What was it that you missed at that time from just speaking strictly about kind of a a modeling perspective? Was it just explosive revenue growth or that it was that margins would, that that they could quickly recapture the money that they spent and their cash flow and working capital would be actually very favorable? Or what was it that you really, you missed on that?
0: I think we overclubbed the the decay rate. So we assumed that growth would not stay as long for, high for as long as it actually did. We didn't think that it would actually go from a, a log curve back to an exponential curve very quickly or that the, you know, the pace of innovation would be, would be as fast. So we were using, now I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say, is that traditional 10 years of explicit model, and then you were going to steady state growth. And of course, that assumption innately did not apply to an industry that was as high growth as the technology sector at the time. And so, you know, I think the issue sat to some degree outside the model in, in that the, the model itself just wasn't equipped to deal with the pace of innovation that was taken.
1: That's such a fascinating analysis of it. And I, I just want to give a little summary of that for my students in the Valuation Masterclass who listen to this podcast basically when we're doing our value model uh you know assumptions we're generally forecasting an explicit period or what i call a discrete period of 5 years and then we do a terminal period because we say no company could maintain high profitability forever so we're going to have to fade that down over maybe five years, 10 years, 15 years. And then, of course, we have a terminal value assumption, which we say, well, no company could grow that fast from a terminal period or else it would outpace the growth of the actual economy it's in. And therefore, we have to keep ourselves conservative on these. But what you're hearing from this discussion is that there are cases when the assumptions that seem to be traditional and realistic get blown out of the water. And it's not so much that the model is flawed. It's just that if you force yourself to operate only within that model, you may force yourself to make assumptions that just may not be the case in a very unique situation of an exploding industry. Would you agree with that?
0: I would completely agree with that. And it's a very, very accurate sort of summarization and much more eloquently than I could have put it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the, the other... The other point on that, and, it, you know, just, just continuing on that theme of what went wrong with the model and why didn't it actually sort of show us the truth. The, the other thing was we didn't really have any reference points. I'm a little bit ashamed of this too, but we probably fell. And, and I, when we say we, I actually mean me. And I'll explain this in, in, in a little bit more detail further along as we talk. But we didn't have any reference points. And so we fell back to what was probably a little bit lazy in terms of thinking. Uh, we looked at other industries which had had high growth in the past. So we went back, and, and, and I actually looked at the auto industry in the early 1900s as a proxy for the kind of growth where you'd expect, where there was a technology disruption which was changing the way people lived and worked. That was nevertheless expensive and, and uh, had, had a high cost of manufacture and, and very sort of out-there economies of scale. As it turns out, the auto industry is not a good model. For technology. The auto industry never had anything like Moore's law. It didn't have the same kind of cost downs in terms of the, the iterations. And obviously the, the time between generations in the auto industry were much longer and slower than we saw in technology. And so, you know, what we really should have was think about how the, the industry was playing out in and of itself. And by trying to use proxies that were poor matches for the, for, for the industry, we actually led ourselves wrong.
1: It's interesting that you talk about going back to the automotive and trying to look for a prior period, a prior cycle, something that you could compare against, which you would argue is very good research. In fact, Ray Dalio um, talks about that in his book Principles, about the idea of, you know, these, lots of these things just repeat themselves, and in some ways that works. But you've got to remember that there are other ways where you go back and try to compare and look at today, and you think you've got a good comparison, but in fact... You don't. And I think, how would you sum up the lessons that you learned from this experience?
0: Look, so I mean, just very quickly, I don't think that was the the mistake. So I think the mistake wasn't getting the sector wrong. As a portfolio manager, you prepare for that. I think the mistake was the level of convection I invested in that particular trade. You know, I think that falls back to, I'm a technophile. I use technology intensively. I've been through three careers. I've used it intensively in every, every career I've been a part of. I'd invested in technology stocks in the past and made a lot of money doing it. And so, if I summarize the mistake, you know, I, I would say that the things that I got wrong were firstly that I was convinced I was right and that if I held my position long enough, it would come out just fine. I think, much more importantly, subconsciously, I allowed that particular trade to occupy a much greater part of the exposure risk in my portfolio than was explicit in just my technology exposures. So somewhere when I was modeling all my other trades, this was at the back of my mind and it was creeping into the assumptions. And that sort of, you know, aggregated over the, the entire portfolio and wound up with a much greater underweight technology than we'd actually expected. That is essentially, I spent less time on construction because I was so over in proving and reproving my thesis. No, that was, that's what I was saying. That was the bigger mistake. For me, that's, that was the biggest mistake of my investing career. And on the back of that, 95 and 96 were probably my worst performance years in the course of my career.
1: So let me summarize a few takeaways. I mean, obviously, we've already got some great learning about, you know, the traditional valuation models and, and the, the weaknesses and strengths. I mean, as I always say about a valuation model, it's a structure that we bring assumptions into, but you, without the right assumptions... It's hard to come out with the right result, and it's not always this structure that's to blame. I think that's the first thing I take away. And the other thing is confirmation bias, which you've talked about, where you're constantly, when you're into something very deep, you spend a huge amount of your time, as you've mentioned, trying to confirm that belief and get stronger in that belief. And um, sometimes, of course, way to mitigate this is to look for the people who have the exact opposite belief and bring them into your office or bring them into your, your, your realm and let them talk and li- listen and try to, to bring that in. But I think the biggest thing that I take away from this uh, that you've just mentioned towards the end of the story was that, hold on, wait a minute, we all get assumptions wrong. We all get maybe a sector bet or a country bet or a currency bet wrong. But when we're managing a portfolio, we understand the concept of diversification. And diversification and trying to not put too much into any one bet is actually protecting us from that damage that we are naturally going to do because we're not gonna always call it right. So I think that the biggest lesson I take away from it is the idea of be careful not to oversize a position in something just because you may feel like you have oversized confidence in that position. Instead, stay true to some basic principles of diversification so that you do increase your bet in that, but it's not gonna wipe you out. I think that's what I would take away from it. Would, uh, would you add anything to that?
0: Yeah, actually, and I think that's, that's spot on, Andrew. I think the, the thing I would add to that was the one you mentioned earlier. Uh, so my biggest lesson was how important the team is in all of this. So just to tell you how we fixed it, we fixed it because uh, we had a really great team, calm, careful, serious investors. We operated a flat structure. We had a really tough investment committee discussion where people you know, spoke very fearlessly about the exposure and what was working and what wasn't. I got one of my team members who was, uh, and you remember this is the 90s when the technology is nothing like it is today. But I got one of my guys who was more quantitatively inclined. We went through the portfolio with a fine tooth comb. We figured out where our marginal exposures were. We scaled back until the only tech bets we had were the ones we actually wanted. The second thing was then I started collaborating with one of my mentees, a brilliantly high, high potential young manager uh, on the technology space and uh, uh, understanding that I had a blind spot. And what, I, what we discovered very quickly was that he just had a knack for the tactical. So not worrying about the strategic, um, but just objectively looking at the tactical. And I delegated more and more of it to him over time. And so what I learned was that it's very hard to change your mind, right? But it's quite easy to get somebody else in who has a different perspective. And so if you've got the right team and you you have the ability to kind of subsume your ego enough, to operate as a team rather than an individual, you'll do absolutely fine. Now, interestingly, the same guy in 99, mid 99, he took an even, so, and back based on the tactical sort of data that was coming through in on production, he took an equivalent underweight on the technology sector, which, which uh, we both agreed with and signed off on. And as a result, the three year and five year over that period into coming into 2000 was exceptional. We avoided the tech wreck and, you know, just, you know, so I guess the, the lesson was the team. If I was going to say that there's another lesson is that it's, it's very unusual that it's too late to fix it. If you recognize that there's a problem. So
1: there's some real gold there. I mean, what I'm hearing from you about that too is the concept. There's some funds that are called long short funds that, you know, are taking a long position in something, taking a short position in something, or even a long short position in one asset where for instance, the market and, this is actually kind of long short in some ways in the way that you build your team and the people that are on your team. And that's definitely one way to make sure you've got a good debate. But uh, I think, you know, there's so much to, to take away from this, uh, that uh, I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. So I think at that point, I'm going to basically ask you now the actionable advice question, which is based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Look, surround yourself with smart people. Talk to them all the time. You know, walking the streets and speaking to people is hard work, especially in our industry where a lot is about reflection. But speak to people as often as you can and use that to test your assumption to the point of destruct testing them if you can. It is all down to the team. It's If you've got people around you you can trust and who will speak truth to you, you're going to be a much, much better investor. Don't try and do it alone.
1: Fantastic advice. And like I say in my, to my young students, I always say great ideas uh, don't happen from behind the computer. And you've got to get out and find them and you've got to get out and test them. And I think we've heard that here. So, well, I think uh, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources, just Go to myworstinvestmentever.com and you can find it there. As we wrap up, Tanun, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Hey, best of luck, everyone. It is a, a, an incredible profession that you're, that you're working towards or that you find yourself in. It's one of the most rewarding things that uh, anyone can do. You know, and it's been a real pleasure being able to share this with you.
1: Fantastic. The cutting edge of capitalism, as my first boss said to me in 1993. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on The Upside.